Okay, we're in a series, the final part of the series, called What Went Wrong. In order to prepare us for Lent, we wanted to take some time with you, and that's what we've done the last three or four weeks, and talk about what actually went wrong that required the cross. Most of us understand very well that our sin needed the cross for redemption. That's true. But that's a very small part of a much larger biblical picture of what was gone, what had gone wrong with all of creation. So we're raising questions that the Old Testament asked but didn't answer. Left us with a big question mark is what we're doing. The uh, early, uh, the, the Jewish people around the time of Christ and the early Christians, they wrestled with these very same questions. We have Jewish writings that are discussing the very topics we discussed. And um, what nobody guessed would happen is what actually happened. Nobody, nobody guessed that. When Christ died that day, the, the hopes of his followers was dashed. The hopes were dashed. Because they understood the Redeemer would come as a king and break the oppressive nature of the Roman Empire, grant them freedom and restore a glorious kingdom, and instead he dies. No wonder they scattered. They scattered. They scattered because they, uh, they couldn't make sense of it. They just couldn't. None of their upbringing had prepared them for a Messiah who would die in front of their eyes. They scattered because their lives were their lives uh, were now in danger, because they were seditionists, and the punishment was death. So they went and hid, and um, it's only a matter of time. Uh, that that was the official charge against Jesus. It's only a matter of time before they came after the uh, his followers, and so they hid. What a surprise! What a confusing moment in history when Christ reappears. How do you make sense of that in any world economy? How do you make sense of that? It forced them to go back for a long time and research the Old Testament and say, how did we miss this? And yet Jesus was the first one to say, this is accordance with the scriptures, your own scriptures, your Jewish scriptures foretold this. You just couldn't connect all the dots. You couldn't make all the pieces fit together. And so therefore, it was confusing. It was surprising. Even Thomas said, I don't believe it. I just simply don't believe it. You guys are out of your mind. Unless I can see the nail prints, I'm done. And I can't imagine what it was like when Jesus walked up to him and said, Take a look. No wonder he fell on his knees and said, My Lord and my God. All he knew was that his world has turned upside down, just like Paul's was on the Damascus Road, turned upside down. He couldn't make head or tail of it, could barely figure it out. It took the church several hundred years to come up with our basic doctrines that we hold to today as they sort of try to sort out this, this amazing cross and resurrection. So we're asking the questions heading into Lent of what went wrong that actually required the cross. Yes, it is your personal sin, but it's far deeper and bigger and more complex than that, as we found out. So today we're going to talk about a very sensitive topic in American culture, the failure of justice. The failure of justice. Uh, 
It's clear to anybody who takes the time to uh, look at a newspaper. I can still say that up here in Summit County because we actually have newspapers. Uh, who reads the internet, who watches TV, it's really clear that the problem of justice is actually a worldwide, it's a global issue. It's not us. Uh, we're a part of it, we're a big contributor to it, but it's bigger than us. It's worldwide. In 2010, the total amount, on a global scale, the total amount of external debt, this is an example, for all the developing countries, those are third world countries and below. The United Nations grades countries on a five-nation scale. So you have, you've heard about first and third world. Well, there's also second, fourth, and fifth world countries as well. So in the developing countries, the combined total amount of uh, debt that they owed us, the, develop, the countries who are developed, was $4 trillion dollars. Now, that doesn't mean a lot. Just like when we talk about a national debt of $17 trillion, I have no idea what that means. Might as well be monopoly money. Well, let me put it in language that would make a little bit more sense. The developing countries of Europe and Central Asia alone, their external debt equals 43% of their gross national income. So figure out what your income is and imagine if your debt was 43%. That's not your house and food and things like that. That's the debt that you have because you spent it. How would you pay it back? Would it even be possible? This is a global issue. The, the, the poorest countries in the world owe us a ton of money not just us, other developing countries. It's a global issue. It's a moral issue. It's an issue of justice. I found out after the first service, I touched a bunch of nerves with this. Why didn't we give it to them? They can't even afford the interest payments on it. And we have basically enslaved many of the nations. Well, what about local? What about just right here at our own home? We have seen problems of justice all around us. There are endless stories of child abuse, spousal abuse. In fact, if you go to uh, Department of Human Services, the website, and look at, uh, they publish this every year. Uh, all 50 states have to report on uh, childhood victims of sexual assault. And the average is right around 9% for each state. Every year, 9% uh, approximately of the children in that state have been sexually abused. Now, here's the thing about it is that those numbers are not repeated year after year because once they're reported, they catch the perpetrator and they go to jail. So every year, those are new numbers. So if you look at the global statistics in our country of just sexual abuse of females, it's a little over 30% from everything I've read. And it gets higher and higher the younger you go. I've seen reports where the millennial generation, 50% of the women have been sexually abused. That's age 10 to 30. So when I walk into a restaurant and I see 10 young, 10 young, 10 young women I automatically know that five of them have been sexually abused. This is a justice issue, isn't it? It's a moral issue, it's a sin issue, but it's also an issue of justice. By the way, the statistics are no different inside the church. Same numbers. We have drug and alcohol addiction. We have debt that's out of control. Out of control. I read the other day that if you're 60 years old, and you want to retire, you need to have at least a million dollars in the bank now. 
the average retirement for a 60-year-old is $160,000. That's out of control. Who's going to pay it? The government? Who's the government? I told my four kids, my oldest one's a loser. He's out of the picture. I hope he listens to this. Number three is not working in a career that's going to make her a number a lot of money. Number four is getting ready to go to seminary. My ship sank before it even got to port. So I told my number two, who has a, her husband has a successful business, all my hope is in you. <laughs> Start saving. <laughs> this is a problem. This is a problem. It is rooted in morality, but morality finds an expression in justice. The way we take care of things, the way we do things. Um, and there's a, lo- a long, long laundry list. You could think of many other issues right here in our own culture. The problem is that every country evaluates justice according to their own cultural standards. We'll talk about that in just a minute. We don't have a, a way of really saying what's just and what's not just. And so our natural tendency, and that's what I want to talk to you about today, is to think like Americans. And, and not everything we do is done well. Not every standard that we use is a good standard when we compare it against the Bible. You know, per, uh, an example, maybe your neighbor gets laid off from work. Uh, what do you think? Do you think it's your responsibility to go help them? Or do you think there's a government program? I ask this in almost every class I teach at seminary or undergraduate, either one. When you uh, pull up to a stop sign and you see a poor person there holding a sign, you know nothing about them other than the sign that says, I'm unemployed and I need help. You know, they could be a complete loser. They could be actually poor. They could be, who knows who they are? You don't know. But when you look at them, is your natural thought to follow which of these lines? This, there's a government program that'll take care of them. If they only worked harder, they wouldn't be in this situation. As a Christian, it's my personal responsibility to help them. Which direction do you go? So you're going to go in one of those directions. By the way, when I asked that of the undergraduate students, 18-year-olds, the answer thus far, 100% over many years, is that, well, the government will take care of them. I love it. That's what we've managed to... uh, Communicate. You walk down the street and you see somebody with uh, the dreads and the tattoos, weird haircut. Do you automatically form a negative conclusion about them without knowing anything about them? A couple of years back, I was in that Red Buffalo coffee shop meeting with somebody. And as I was walking out, this guy walks in. And uh, he had the tats and the long dreads and everything. And, and uh, I really didn't give him a second glimpse. And, but he said to me, I loved your statement about the tree of life. Now, I made one statement. We're going to come back to this during Lent. In Revelation 21 and 22, in the new Jerusalem, in on the new earth is the tree of life. We get to get back to the tree of life. And guess what it says about that tree of life? It says the leaves are for the healing of the nations. So once we go through glory, we still have work to do. And I think it's going to look something like this. The, us as American Christians are going to say to the Rwandan Christians, we are so sorry we didn't give you more of our wealth. 
And the Rwandan Christians are going to say, and we're so sorry we held it against you. That's all I said. How long did that take? 30 seconds? And this guy walks in. If he had lied to a thousand people, I never would have predicted he'd be at church. And this guy walked in. I already had formed an opinion about him. It's as natural as breathing. And he said, I love your question, your statement about the tree of life. And I go, when did you hear me talk about the tree of life? And he goes, in the amphitheater on Sunday, I was there. I said, wow, okay. You know, in my mind, I, I mean, there's a sense of a little bit of shame and guilt, like, boy, I misjudged this person. And he said, so I have a question for you. I've been thinking about it. The tree of life, man, he goes, do you, the leaves that are on the tree of life, do you think that could be cannabis? <laughs> Mark and I have talked about writing a book of the funny things that pastors have to experience. I just laughed and said, you know, all the Greek training in the world hasn't helped me answer that question. <laughs> I have no idea. He goes, I think it is. I said, well, I'm sure we're going to find out. Is that your natural tendency is to, is to evaluate uh, profile in an unhealthy way to form opinions about people which may or may not be true? It's mine. I have to combat that on a regular basis. Justice is very difficult to navigate. We learn to make moral decisions about justice based on our culture. That's how we do it. And we're Americans, and we believe in liberty, a free market economy, the right to the pursuit of happiness. And that has shaped many of our values, and I want to talk about it. So let's just begin with a simple question. What is justice? From a biblical perspective, what is it? From a biblical perspective, it is the intention of God to set the world right. That's what it is. To set the world right. And to give people what is due them. When you raise your children with discipline, you are demonstrating justice. The challenge is, how on earth do you figure out what is due to people? How do you do that? That is the hard work. It's very difficult to do. This is captured in the New Testament by the concept of righteousness, and the Old Testament, by the way, God's righteousness. What does Paul say in Romans? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it, the righteousness of God, the sense of justice is revealed. That'll give you a hint of what's coming when we get to the cross, but not yet. The righteousness of God brings true justice, but I'm going to surprise you because it's not going to be what you think it is. This core definition um, relates to the practice of what we call judicial responsibility, how we interact with each other, how we formulate policy, how we relate to each other, and it should have a focus on fairness, justice, and equitability, where people are all treated equal. It doesn't matter your station in life. Everyone should be treated equal. It should be central to the Christian faith and therefore central to how we engage the world around us. It should define us as Christians. We are just people. We do what's right for everyone. The Bible is full of commands to do justice well. Deuteronomy 16, for example, in verse 18 says, Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Would that sink in just a little bit? 
The Lord abhors that. Abhors that. Don't show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the innocent. Follow justice and justice alone, so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God has given you. Deuteronomy 16. Or Isaiah 1, verse 17. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. We talk about this all the time, but how many of us, how many of you, let's make it personal, naturally think, I have a responsibility to care for a door or a widow I know. This should define us. Amos. Amos is full of language about this. Hate evil, he says. I love Amos. He's one of my heroes. He doesn't mind calling it like it is. He just doesn't mind offending people in the slightest. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. The problem is that we're not very good at it, are we? I'm going to read just a couple of verses. But every, by the way, I could have picked hundreds of other verses. I just picked three. The Old Testament is rich with this language of justice. Every single prophet indicted Israel on their failure to be just, to do what was right. Isaiah 10, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? Or again, Amos. Just read Amos. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in the court and detest the one who tells uh, the truth. You know, I was driving yesterday in a snowstorm. Uh, and you know what it's like when we have a bunch of snow on the ground. They haven't cleared yet. The roads go really slow. Traffic is uh, always snarled a little bit. And there's a whole lot of road rage. You just got to be patient, right? And there's a line. I'm going toward the highway. And there's a long line going toward Keystone and A Basin. So I get to the light. And I get it ready to turn left. And the light turns red. And, uh, and so I'm just sitting there waiting for the green arrow. And the light is red. And the cars start to cross over. And the guy decides he wants to get to Keystone, apparently, an extra 30 seconds. And runs right through the light. Doesn't even try to stop. I can see him spin his tires because snow starts spitting up. All right? So then he blocks the cars ahead of stop. So I just tooted my horn. He rolls the window down, flips me off, and starts cussing me out. And I'm going, wow. <laughs> Life is too short for that. You know? If somebody did it to me, I would have gone, yeah, you're right. You're right. My bad. I shouldn't have done it. Wow. He, he just... There are those who hate justice. <laughs> You levy a straw tax on the poor. You impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. So I don't know what you're all worth. Let's, uh, so we'll just pick a couple of scenarios. Let's say you're worth, maybe you have 50000 in the bank. 
Maybe you have 10 million in the bank. It doesn't matter to me. The question is still the same. Jesus walks up to you and he says, I just gave you 10 million bucks and guess what? Not one single penny of that is yours. Not one penny. Because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We're stewards, not owners. Understand the difference? We're stewards, not owners. And furthermore, that 10 million bucks or that 50,000 or whatever it is you have, 500 bucks, not one penny of it is yours. I want you to use it the way I told you to use it. Enjoy a little bit of it and bless others with the rest of it. How would you feel? Because that is what Amos is saying. God knows exactly what you're doing with it. And he's not going to mind looking you in the eyes one day and saying, What'd you, why'd you do what you do? did. I gave you this money. We're not very good at it. I asked, I just taught a class two weeks ago at the seminary. Master's class was on the stewardship of resources. And that's in a leadership program. And so I do this exercise every year. Um, it's a different kind of exercise, but they have a, a very similar theme. I said, uh, all of you have been listening to the rhetoric and all the news about the, the new tax law. And uh, what are you hearing about the tax law? And they said, the rich are getting richer. I said, right. Do you believe it? And they said, absolutely. And I said, okay. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I said, oh, it's obviously a bad thing. And I said, okay. Here are the facts. I just went up on the board and I drew said, here are the facts. The top 2% of the wage earners in the United States pay 25% of all the taxes received by the federal government. The top 50% of the wage earners in the United States pay 97% of all the taxes received by the federal government. That means the bottom 50% only pay together 3% of the taxes. So if you have a tax cut, is it mathematically possible to help the poor? And they said, no. And I said, guess what? You're right. The rich are getting richer. They're the ones that have the tax cut. That's not the problem. That's called rhetoric. God made Solomon the wealthiest man on the earth. The question is, are the wealthy getting greedier? So your assignment is to go figure out and come back tomorrow and tell me how you're going to answer that question. I'm not going to answer it for you. You answer it. Greed is a statement of economic position. That's all it is. I mean, wealth is a statement of economic position. Greed is a statement of the heart. Don't confuse the two. I praise God that some of you are wealthy because I know you to be generous. I know you to be generous. Two years ago, we did a, a year and a half ago, we did a, uh, oh, I'm not going to tell that story. I changed my mind. I just know that some of you are wealthy. And, uh, and some of you have come to me and said, look, if, is, there, is there something in the church that needs help? I praise God for that. We want generous, wealthy Christians. We don't want greedy, wealthy Christians. Do you understand the difference? It's very difficult to sort this out. Our tendency is to say, when we read these Bible verses, this is not us. Whew, I'm glad I wasn't in Israel. Is it true? Is it true? So here's the question I want you to wrestle with. What is the standard by which you evaluate justice? What is it? 
That's why I asked you the questions in the beginning. Do you see, even if you can't do anything about it, do you see poverty as your personal responsibility? Or do you think, oh, the government will take care of it? What's the standard by which you evaluate these things? Our natural tendency is to make justice about policy and structure. That's our natural tendency. We have criminal justice systems, right? We have the, crim- the, we have the Justice League. We look to bring perpetrators to justice. But theologically, the way we administer justice reveals our character. The way we administer justice talks about who we are in Christ. That's the truth. We just prayed the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is about justice. We want your kingdom as it is right now in heaven. We want it on the earth. Don't we? It's amazing when they asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. He only prayed about a very few simple things and they involved justice. We want your standard here because this is our home. We want daily bread. That's what we want. It's daily bread. Just take care of us. We don't need any more than that. I force my students to go through an exercise and write about it, asking the question, how much is enough? I'm not going to answer it for you. You need to answer it. How much is enough? And when you reach that limit line, then everything else, have fun blessing people with it. How much is enough? Daily bread. What's the next thing we pray for? Forgive us of our debts as we forgive debtors. God forgive us, forgives us of our debt. We should be forgiving of others. So what should we do with all these developing countries that have debt so, so high that they can't pay it? That's way above my pay grade, by the way. I don't know how to answer the question. I just know our system, the way I think as an American, should be challenged. I do believe that. I'm going to quote a book by uh, Miroslav Wolf, one of my favorite theologians, Public Faith in Action, How to Think Carefully, Engage Wisely, and Vote with Integrity. Uh, It covers many public issues we deal with. It's a very challenging and intriguing book. It's worth reading. He says, we need the virtue of justice. Now think about that. Justice is a virtue. Because God is just, we are called to be just. Because God is loving, we are called to be loving. Justice is a character issue. It's not a legal issue. We need the virtue of justice in order to cut through the glare of fame, wealth, and power to see what really counts when determining what is due to others. Because it's really hard for us to see it. How do we determine that? Our natural manner is based on our raising, our cultural upbringing in a free market economy. Isn't it? The pursuit of happiness, that's how we naturally think. I'm going to read to you a parable. You're welcome to follow along. It's Matthew 20. It's a parable that nobody likes. We very spend very little time on it. We try to whittle it away theologically so it doesn't get to our conscience And yet, it says things that, as Americans, that make us sweat a little bit. It's Matthew chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven, now we want the kingdom of heaven on earth as it is in heaven, don't we? 
Isn't that our prayer? We want the kingdom here. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into the vineyard to work. So about nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. So he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, what are, why are you standing here? And they said, no one's hired us. He said to them, but you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. I love this. Audibles set people up. They get it, it, Parables are designed to ambush you. That's really what they're designed to do. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received the denarius. So when those who were hired first came, they expected to receive more. Now this is good American thinking. Right? I, I'm an expert in this kind of thinking. I love it. They expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? I love that last question. The true nature of what we think is fair always benefits us. That's our natural tendency. Always benefits us. This is a tough parable. So theologians like to play with it and say, well, we must be talking about salvation. Those that come in at the last get salvation too. The problem is, is that the salvation is never mentioned in the text. No, he's talking about justice. He's beginning to give us a glimpse of justice the way God sees it. The cries of the poor reach the ears of the Lord, the prophets say, and the cries of the rich do not. This means we need to redefine how we view justice. Now, if you like the first service, I'm going to hear plenty of argumentation as soon as it's over, which I actually love. God's definition of justice is very different than ours. Our, this parable does teach us a few things. Number one is there's no simple rule for computing what is due. There is no simple rule. We like to make rules, and we like to make rules that benefit us. There is no simple rule. But what we do learn is that everyone should have the opportunity to work and at least have the resources they need to survive, even if they can't. That is the heart of the Lord's Prayer. Give us, not what we earn. Give us today our daily bread. Everyone has the right to that. That's why the Lord's Prayer focuses on justice, daily bread, and forgiveness. You know, I was in India 
Uh, I go there every year, and I was in India a few years ago, and I was at the airport, and here's what I saw. I have my bag, and I have to go through security. So I wheel my bag up, and an Indian guy picks it up, turns around, and hands it to another Indian. That's one person. This person places it on the conveyor belt to go through the x-ray. That's the second person. There's a supervisor standing here. That's a third person. On the other side of the x-ray machine, out comes my suitcase, and a guy picks it up. That's a fourth person. Turn around and hands it to another guy. This is a fifth person. This guy places it on a table. That's a sixth. And uh, where a guy opens it up, that's a sixth person. Slides it to a guy down here who goes through it. That's a seventh person. And there's a supervisor watching. That's the eighth person. Now, I'm an American. I understand efficiency, productivity, and profit. I get it. So I asked my friend, I go, what is that all about? Eight people? One person could do that job. And he looked at me with surprise and he goes, well, what would the other seven do for a job? <laughs> a whole different basis for evaluating justice than we have. Who's right? I can't answer that question. That's just above us. The truth is, we simply don't have the knowledge to judge others' abilities and motives. It's real popular right now in, uh, in American culture to evaluate how we help people in such a way that we don't hurt them. That's a good principle. There's just one weakness in it. We're not God. We do not have the ability to evaluate people's motives. We simply don't. I would love for you to come with me. Some of you have been to Haiti. Come with me to, to, to Nepal. It's ten times worse than Haiti. And see what I see. The people, they, they don't have the resources or even the energy to improve themselves. My young students, every single Nepalese young woman is beautiful. Big brown eyes, gorgeous dark colored skin. And by the time they're 30, I can't tell if they're 30 or 80. Because they have to work so hard. I have no idea how old they are. I have pictures of five-story buildings with guys up there, bricklayers, putting bricks up. And women with wicker baskets carrying 100 pounds of bricks up these five stairs. Five sets of stairs to give them to the guys back down. That's all they do all day long. They have neck issues, back issues. They have all kinds of issues. I can't tell if they're 30 or 80 because they've worked so hard. What about the people in our own culture? I mean, think about um, some of the unwed or divorced mothers, just to, be, just to give an example. Do we really know what their motives are? The most common response I heard after the first service is, yeah, but we should teach a person to fish rather than give them a fish. And I said, show me that in the Bible, anywhere. Anywhere. God gives you $10 million and not one penny of it is yours. God gives you 500 bucks and not one penny of it is yours. What's the system of justice that you're going to use to make the decision on how to use those resources? If it involves evaluating other people's motives, you have just fundamentally violated the core of Christian teaching. The very thing God tried to protect us from in the garden was a knowledge of good and evil. Because to assess motive takes omniscience. 
I do not know your circumstances and I do not know your motive. It's not possible for me to know. That's why the Bible says assess everything on the basis of at least two or three witnesses. Take a good hard look and be willing to be wrong. Now, we do have the responsibility because we live in a broken world. We can't walk around saying, well, I'm not going to try to assess anybody's motives. Parents have to assess motives, don't they? Church leaders have to assess motives. We have to do that. So we have to do it with extreme caution, lots of prayer, and great wisdom. So we really don't want to hurt people with our money. That is true. But don't use that as an excuse by saying, I'm not going to help hurt. I'm not going to use it to help people. What is the system by which you evaluate justice? We simply don't know people's motives. We don't. And there's a whole lot of people around us that couldn't even do better if they tried. They don't have the resources, perhaps. Maybe they don't have the education and training. There's lots of ways you can evaluate it. Our job is not so much to evaluate as much as to help and make it just. These things should cause us to weep I do wrestle with my conscience that all these developing third, fourth, and fifth world countries owe us so much money. And they, we, can't even, we can't even manage our own debt. <laughs> oh my gosh. The Old Testament ends without answering the question of true justice. And they're left to scratch their heads saying, what in the world does justice look like? In Lent, we're going to come back and answer it. Welcome to Lent. Father, thank you for your goodness again. We are so grateful. We're grateful, Lord, that we live in a nation where you have blessed us. We have so much here, and uh, we, we are so thankful for that. I, I'm sure there's not a person here that's not grateful. Um, we may be a little envious from time to time. Maybe we want more, but we're grateful for what you've done to us and how you've taken care of us. We could have been raised in countries where we wouldn't have enough food to eat for the day. Thank you for taking care of our daily needs. But Lord, most of all, thank you for loving us, even though we don't know what to do with justice and it's confusing to us. And we don't do it right or very well often. Thank you for loving us anyway, for sending your son. And Lord, I'd like to say a special to you for these people sitting right here. I know them, and I know them to be very generous. They, uh, they all give. Some give a little, some give a lot. But Lord, they give, and they bless our church, and they make it possible for us to, to help the people in our own little county here. And I saw I'm grateful for them. Bless, bless them, Lord, because of their generosity. In your son's name, amen.